HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef. Available on the internet at hearstranch.com. Welcome to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're broadcasting live from the studios of, in the back of Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Brunch is being served. And today, my guest in studio, I'm very happy to say, is the wonderful Marion Nessel, who is the Paulette Goddard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health, the department she chaired from 1988 to 2003, and a professor of sociology, and all of these are at New York University. She's also the author of Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health, Safe Food, The Politics of Food Safety, What to Eat, Pet Food Politics, The Chihuahua in the Coal Mine, and Feed Your Pet Right, co-authored with Malden Nesheim. Her most recent book, which is the subject of our interview today, was published just recently in 2012, also with with, uh, Professor Nesheim, Why Calories Count, From Science to Politics. Marion also writes a monthly Food Matters column for the San Francisco Chronicle and blogs daily, almost, at www.foodpolitics.com, which is really a fantastic blog, Marion, I must say. It's one of the few that I read on a regular basis, and I do read it like three or four times a week. Um, And you write for The Atlantic, which I didn't realize. Oh, they just steal my blog. Oh, is that what it is? (laughs) (laughs) They they reprint the blog. And you you tweet. You tweet. tweet. Am I supposed to say hashtag Marion Nestle? No, it's at Marion Nestle, one Nessel. word. See, I just don't understand the Twittering thing yet. I mean, it's embarrassing, but I don't. Anyway, um, this is I, I know that your books are often sort of science and politics and, and very much about food politics, but why did you write this particular book about calories? Well, in this one, I was asked to. The oh, edit- no kidding. Yeah, the editor at University of California Press, my long-term editor, uh, took me to lunch one day and said, I've been thinking that it would be good if you would write a book about calories. I thought it was a brilliant idea. Just a brilliant idea. 
and I took to it right away and then asked Mal Nesheim to help me because uh, we had done this pet food book together. Right. We knew we could write together, and he's got a really great science background, and um, I thought it would be really helpful to yeah, have no some... no kidding. The science some, is pretty intense, Marianne. It's pretty intense. Yeah. And I knew I'd need help with it, and it was just great. We had a terrific time doing it. But the reason that I thought it was such a good idea was, first of all, I know that nobody understands calories. Nobody does. Uh, plenty of research indicates that the public is confused about calories. I think that's fair to say. Um, and then also calories are involved in the two most important public health nutrition problems that exist today, and that is starvation and hunger and not having enough food, and obesity, which is having too much. So there you go. And uh, there's a lot to be said about them, and I thought we would have no trouble filling a book. Yeah, no with, trouble. With stuff about calories. And we had no trouble filling a book with stuff about calories. And what was amazing to me is it's very readable. <laughs> Oh. The, I mean, that is some. Oh, I mean, that's some we're, heavy duty stuff, and we you guys managed very hard on that. Yeah, because it really it reads yeah. along very cheerfully, and even though there are lots of graphs and things to look at. Um, which can often make my eyes glaze over, quite frankly. Sorry about that. Um, they were they were so well explained that I wanted to look at them, which I thought was a real triumph of writing style. Oh, thank you oh, for you're saying welcome. that. Yeah, no, I think it was uh, very hard to write a book like that and make it, you know, entertaining. And the whole history of calories and calorie research, which went back way beyond what I thought. I think 1734 was the first date. That the first serious, the first one serious effort in. at calculating yeah. a unit of energy mm. and then calling it a calorie. Well, from actually, food. my favorite was Sanctorius in the 1600s, right. who was, I mean, I just say this was a guy with an obsessive compulsive <laughs> disorder. Um, he just wanted to understand how, what food had to do with weight. And so he weighed everything he ate or drank. Um, he weighed his pee. He weighed um, the rest of what he was excreting. Mm-hmm. And he weighed his body every single day for 30 years yeah 30 years 30 folks. years oh yeah uh, <laughs> and we have a picture in the book of the yes. chair he used for weighing um yeah there's a lot of fun stuff in this and one of the things we wanted to do was to make this readable so we organized the book into very very short chapters each of them designed to ask a question you might have or maybe never thought of That's about, right. about calories. And also a sort of little mini introduction to each section of the book so that you knew what you were getting into in the next chapter yeah. or two chapters or something. I like that technique a lot as well. Brace yourself. There are a lot of numbers coming. There, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But the first half of the book is, is very much about sort of the science of calories. But then the second half of the book um, is really about the politics of calories, which, you know, from my point of view is, is in many ways the most interesting aspect of it. Um, but before we get into that i do want to ask you how many calories make a pound and are the pound is a pound of calories from junk food the same as a pound of calories from vegetables and grains. I think people are very confused about that. Oh, of course they are. And they're confused about it because there's a split. There's a dichotomy here. If you look at body weight strictly from the standpoint of body weight and you don't care about health, just weight, then it's only calories. And the calories from vegetables are the same as calories from Twinkies. If you look at it from the standpoint of health, obviously there's a big difference. And what makes it confusing is that it's easier to manage weight if you eat healthfully. 
Yes. So that's what makes it confusing. And in that sense, uh, it's hard to it's hard to do the experiments on this because calories are very hard to measure. Um, you can't just looking at the pizza that's being served right in front of us here figure out how many calories that has unless you go into the kitchen and weigh every single ingredient in it. Um, and I mean, it's pretty thin crust pizza. It's probably not too bad, but nobody can tell if you in order to measure measure that accurately, the chances are it's got a lot more calories than you think it does, alas. Well, one of the points that you make several times in the beginning of the book is that people consistently underestimate the number of calories that they're eating. And it's not because they're trying to hide anything, but simply because it just doesn't seem like you're eating that many calories no matter what your diet is. Yeah, well, really. my favorite example, and I think we tell this story in the book, is that my former doctoral student, Lisa Young, who measured portion sizes, we asked her to do us a favor and ask her class. Um, she teaches beginning nutrition. Ask your class how many calories are in an 8-ounce soda and how many calories are in a 64-ounce soda. And she came back and said, I I don't believe this, but they said, whatever it was they said for eight ounces, they multiplied by three, not eight. And we wow. said, you got to go back and ask them. Go back and ask them how come they think that if an eight-ounce soda has 100 calories, a 64-ounce soda has 300. And they told her that they couldn't believe that a soda had 800 calories. It was inconceivable. It was impossible. And I think people feel that way. They can't believe how many calories are in things. Yeah, it just, it does seem, when you get up into those numbers, it just does seem kind of incredible. Yeah, go eat in any restaurant and there it is. Yeah, I know, really. Mm. Well, those are very interesting, those laws that are starting to force chain restaurants to publish their calories. Mm. And we can, I hope, talk about that in a second, but maybe that'll be another show. Um, But to go back to the politics of this, how do politics fit into the science of calories? I mean, how did you decide that, that was going to be the second half of the book. I mean, essentially, the subtitle is From Science to Politics. So you do the science part in the first half, and then the politics. You know, why did, why did that seem like an important Well, it's because I write about food politics. It's what I'm interested in. And, uh, you know, the science is really interesting, and I find it, I think, if you read through the early chapters of the book, it helps you understand everything that comes later in a way that you might not otherwise. Uh, but we have calorie labeling, just to pick a good example. That's politics. What's on food labels is politics. Uh, the fact that there are no calorie labels on al- alcohol on alcoholic beverages is about politics. Alas, or actually, I should say, <laughs> thank it, God. Thank heavens. <laughs> thank heavens. As you know, I've been following the vodka diet myself. Y- yeah, <laughs> right. Well, that'll work if you don't need anything else. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the uh, one of the big um, you know, the big things that I learned was the complexities of alcohol labeling. I had no idea the FDA doesn't label alcoholic beverages unless they have hardly any alcohol in them. They're regulated by the Treasury Department, which couldn't care less about public health. They're in interested in treasury yeah fascinating i mean that whole division of the usda the fda the bureau of tobacco and firearms i mean all of those different you know categories of government that come into play when it comes to labeling i thought was very interesting the sort of turf wars that seem to especially between the fda and the usda um you referred to the research of david kessler in his book the end of overeating and Mm -hmm. he has a quote that's that goes like this. Um, the pleasure you get from consuming high-calorie foods full of salt, sugar, and fat overrides biological regulatory signals by rewiring your brain to cause you to eat more of those foods. I thought that was an absolutely staggering 
hypothesis. Oh, yeah. This is the addiction hypothesis that's, that there'll be more and more and more coming out about that. Kelly Brownell at Yale, who's an obesity researcher at Yale, has a new book coming out fairly soon um, that's going to be a compilation of articles about food addiction. I think everybody is going to want to read that mm-hmm. uh, because there's so much in there. What Kessler did was to look at how companies decide how to make junk foods. And basically, they they want people to eat their foods. These mm-hmm. foods are enormously profitable. And so they make them so that people really like them. And if you like something, it stimulates your pleasure centers. And now we're starting to get into the whole business about whether this is addictive or not addictive. I'm not comfortable. I'm a nutritionist. Nutritionists are not comfortable about talking about food as addictive. You have to eat in order to live. It's Food is not cigarettes in the, in the same way that... But it kind you know, of is. Or heroin. Well, but it, or alcohol. Or alcohol. I mean, it mm. sort of is when you think about it. I mean, if you take Dr. Kessler's hypothesis and assume that there is something about the way these foods are being formulated that literally does tie into some sort of addictive you know mm. plug in your brain why wouldn't that be considered addictive and then why why wouldn't it be regulated well in in reading brownell's book because i i did a blurb for mm-hmm. it so i i've read it i was impressed that it's sort of guilt by association people talk about food as if it's addictive um, people um, feel have the same kind of feelings about food as if it's addictive and i think for many people uh they're just things a lot of the same kind of mechanisms come in to play but we have to eat to live we can't right. live without eating food the question is what foods we choose um, and where we choose to get our calories and so this is in the whole re- realm that is different from just body weight it's also about health yeah well i mean the whole idea that food is addictive and i think i think there's a a certain danger in making that association in your own mind of like, oh, well, I'm ad- I'm an addict, I'm helpless, I can't really manage this, mm. and it's really not my fault that I must consume a pint of Haagen-Dazs and a, and a basket of Oreo cookies before I go mm. to bed. That's just mm. out of my control now. Mm. Um, and so, therefore, I need some sort of food methadone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, or you need a 12-step program. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, the food environment encourages this, and the easiest way to explain this is with portion, with portion size. I did want to ask you about that, because you re- refer to portion size as growing sometime a very, at a very specific point in the, um, oh, like yeah. it was in the just 90s, w- where it No, just- the early 1980s, um, oh, and this, yeah. was, this was Lisa Young's doctoral research. She did a huge investigation of when portion sizes started to increase, and guess what? They started going up just exactly when rates of obesity started going up. Uh-huh. That can hardly be uh, a coincidence. And, you know, the the thing that I just wish I could get across to everybody, and I can't even say it with a straight face because it's so funny, is larger portions have more calories. (laughs) Oh, boy, what a buzzkill you are, (laughs) Marion. And... You know, it's not intuitively obvious. And Brian Wansing, who's a professor at Cornell, can prove it because he trains his students into, he trains his students that larger portions have more calories, they cause people to eat more calories, and they cause people to underestimate the number of calories to a greater extent that they would if they were eating a small portion. And then he takes these students and he puts them in separate rooms to watch the Super Bowl, and he gives some of them two quart bowls of snacks 
snacks and some of them four-quart bowls of snacks, counts it up afterwards, and guess what? His students, trained uh, with the larger bowls, eat more than the ones with the smaller bowls, underestimate more, and have... Uh, there they are. They're just... If you're confronted with a large plate of food, you're going to eat it. Yeah. Well, and we have that whole mentality of clean your plate, which is a leftover from, you know, whatever depression and post-war years. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, Jack, do we need to take a sponsor drop now? We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Dr. Marion Nessel talking more about her new book, Why Calories Count. grass-fed beef pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef free-range, sustainably produced humane Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef the authentic flavor of the American West We are back on Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. This is your host, Katie Kiefer, and my guest today in studio is Dr. Marion Nessel, and we're talking about Marion's new book, um, Why Calories Count, From Science to Politics. Marion, thanks again for joining me on the program today. Um, so we were just talking about portion control, and that sort of led us led me to think that we should talk a little bit about how... Uh, United, you know, federal agricultural policy has an impact on calories and and the whole sort of portion thing. And and there was something that you describe in the book called the shareholder value movement. What did that mean in terms of sort of the escalation in portion size and how um, food companies wanted to market more of certain products and so on? I can see you smiling with anticipation. I know you have a lot to say. Oh, I that. love this one. Um, yeah, this here's my over. Oh dear, here's my oversimplified way of explaining why obesity became a problem starting in the early 1980s. Three things happened, all of them having to do with deregulation. The first was deregulation of agriculture, where the Department of Agriculture, which used to pay farmers not to grow food, right. to keep fields fallow, started paying farmers to grow as much food as they possibly could and to reward them for the amount they produced. Our farmers are very good at doing what they're supposed to do. They produced more. And the number of calories in the food supply went from 3,200 in 1980 to 3,900 20 years later. Um, That made the food industry very competitive. Uh, 3,900 calories is roughly twice what the country needs on average. This is man, women. This is per capita man, every man, woman, and child, and little teeny baby. 3,900 calories. Well, not consuming, but available. Available Available. calories, right? 
Um, so they became very competitive. But the second thing that happened was a, a sense of deregulation of Wall Street in a way where prior to uh, the early 1980s, Wall Street used to value blue-chip stocks. You never hear a word about blue-chip stocks anymore. These were stocks that gave long, slow, endless returns on investment. In 1981, Jack Welch, who was then head of General Electric, made a speech in which he said, enough of this blue-chip stock stuff. Uh, We want higher returns on investment now. Um, And so Wall Street changed the way in which it started evaluating corporations, and we see the disastrous results that that has had in Wall Street now. But for food companies, it was extraordinarily difficult. They were already competing heavily. But now they not only had to make a profit, they had to make and make fast profits. They had to make profits every 90 days and report growth to Wall Street not just profit to Wall Street, but growth to Wall Street every 90 days. Um, so that put even more pressure on food companies. And then the third area of deregulation was in marketing, where there was a real pullback on restrictions on marketing foods with health claims and other kinds of things, so that food companies could use these um, marketing openings to promote their products in ways they never had before. And the way they, the ways they chose to... Uh, sell more food was, first of all, larger portions, then putting food everywhere. And I love to ask the question, when did it become okay to eat in bookstores? I assure you, it's since the 1980s. Right. When did vending machines go into schools? When did Dwayne Reed become a A grocery grocery store um, or Staples? which now has a grocery section, um, or clothing stores. You can buy food at clothing stores. I mean, it's just weird. Um, So food is everywhere, and it turns out the things that make people eat more food are being given more food and having food right there. Right. Not to mention that earlier special combination of fat, salt, and sugar, all of which go into snack foods. No, no, that's the cheap, cheap That's the cheap issue. And because of supply and demand, the basic food ingredients were cheap. Yeah, well, for sure, because, I mean, we had all those corn subsidies. Everybody grew corn. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so that had a huge impact on Mm -hmm. the snack food industry. Mm -hmm. Anyway... Although we now can, they're complaining that corn is being grown for biofuels and it's raised the price. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, every agricultural, I mean, every farmer who grows livestock has a legitimate beef about that. Cause they're, mm. And that's, that's in turn had a big impact on food prices in the supermarket. In the wor- and yeah. in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well, riots. I mean, I think mm. even the, the Egyptian spring, the, you know, right. the, the whole Middle Eastern situation was largely sort of mm-hmm. stemmed from uh, food shortages in, in the mm. past few years. But anyway... I want to just, um, we talked about just for a second about um, how they used marketing, you know, these new loopholes in marketing restrictions, but labeling is something we mentioned earlier, and that's sort of part of the same thing. Can we talk a little bit about how labeling, labeling things, you know, like the nutritional claims or how you label or break down a calorie label so that you mm-hmm. can see what you're getting, sodium, fat, everybody looks at those. I know I look at them obsessively. Of course, I don't really know what they, any of them mean. <laughs> Um, but let's talk a little bit about how those influence consumer choices and how companies can 
set those labels up, how that's regulated, how the label actually looks, the you know the the sort of design of it mm-hmm. and the way it's broken down. I mean, part of that is regulated and part of it is not. And it, it seemed like people could really change their the format sort of at will if they wanted mm, to. Or no, 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 no. No, this, these are the kinds of issues I discuss in my book, What to Eat, that came mm. out in 2007. Um, and I go into the labeling business extensively in that book. But the important thing to understand is that these food labels came in in 1990. Now, actually, they came in and they were implemented in 1993. God, I feel like I've always seen them, but yeah, I think you're yeah, right. Yeah. I'm, I know. I'm, you, I know you're right. I know, I know I'm right. right. <laughs> on, this one, on this one, I know I'm right. And the... Um, the uh, uh, up until that time, the FDA said that food companies could not make health claims about their products on package labels. But when Congress passed the law that put the nutrition facts labels on food packages, the food industry complained that if they had to say what was bad about their product, salt, sugar, fat, whatever, um, that they ought to be able to say what was good about them. And Congress agreed and forced the FDA to start putting health cla- to allow health claims on on food products, provided they had some science behind them. Well, when somebody says that something is antioxidant, I mean, how much science is there? I mean, how do you measure antioxidant? Oh, you can measure antioxidant. And how, how effective yeah. and how re- reliable is the science behind the whole claim of antioxidant? Well, you don't want to look at the science too closely yeah. <laughs> because what the science shows over and over and over again is that if you give people antioxidant supplements, um, they not only don't do any better, they sometimes do worse. Uh, and, and yet we've all been sold on the concept of antioxidants. Entire industries, entire industries. beverage, the beverage industry mm-hmm. has had a, a an absolute field day with this, with yeah, pomegranate well, juice and acai berries mm-hmm. and all of that jazz. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't buy any of it, so. You know, I yeah. All but fruit I, juices have uh, antioxidants. Well, any and, fresh fruit. I yeah, would I'm, think. I'm particularly fond of the pomegranate juice claims because they've sunk a fortune oh, into huge. doing research, and the research demonstrates without question that pomegranate juice has. Uh, antioxidant activity. Well, duh. Who, who would ever have thought it wouldn't? But they don't compare it to orange juice or any other kind of juice. Which probably has an equal... Which has, uh, well, I would expect, would have just as much. Yeah. I mean, and plus lots of lovely fiber and everything, too. Indeed. In su- assuming that's what you want. And the other thing that you didn't talk about a lot in the book, or maybe I somehow missed it, although I doubt it. Um, let's talk for a <laughs> second about fad diets. Because when we first started setting up this interview a few months ago, I had been visiting with a friend who was on that crazy diet of like, you know, 500 calories a day and the hormone replacement thing. Eeks. Remember that? Eeks, oh, we yeah. were talking about that. And I mean, you know, obviously she... 500 she, calories a day, she's going to lose weight. She, I, I know. <laughs> and she seemed to think that the only reason she had lost weight was because, because of, of this hormone. hormone thing, which scared the bejesus out of me. 500 calories a day, she's going to lose weight fast. Yeah, and mm-hmm. did. And, you know, mm-hmm. looked fabulous and everything. But there are so many fad diets and, there are some, and there's so much industry around the business mm-hmm. of diets and calorie counting and all of that. It's a $60 billion dollar a year industry. Thank you. So the most effective one of them, I think, is probably Weight Watchers because they Mm -hmm. actually do pay attention to portion size and Mm -hmm. calorie counting. Mm -hmm. But what about other diets that, I mean, so many people do like, I'm not going to have any carbohydrates or Mm -hmm. I'm going to eat low fat or I'm going to eat high protein or the Atkins diet. I mean, all Mm -hmm. of these, the, the South Beach diet. You know, they seem like a tremendously successful industry, but do mm-hmm. people actually manage to lose weight and keep it off under Well, those if diets? they follow the rules, they do. 
I mean, any diet will help you lose weight if it helps you reduce calories. If it doesn't help you reduce calories, you're going to have a little trouble losing weight, (laughs) uh, unfortunately. And the studies that compare one diet to another, and we collected all of the big ones we could find that ran long enough to tell the difference, um, those studies come out with several sort of common results. Any diet will help you lose weight if you follow it. Um, If you don't follow it, it won't help you lose weight. And they all work really, really well for about the first six months. And then after that, people start gaining the weight back because they stop following it. Because it's very, very hard to stay on extreme diets for any length of time, either the high fat or the high carbohydrate I'm incapable of dieting yeah, myself. I have no discipline. Well, it's very, very difficult to do. It's no fun. No, Eating is fun. Dieting is not. Yeah. Eating <laughs> no. is really fun. Yeah. yeah. So you're saying the only diet that really works is to eat less and move more. That was the takeaway from the book. Well, so eat less, you, move and it, more. And it's more important to eat less than it is to move more because it's so hard to make up for the... the it's so easy to overeat calories. We're back to portion size yeah. again. And so hard to do the exercise to make up for it. For example, the New York the city health department has subway posters that explain that you have to walk from Brooklyn to Union Square in order to work off the calories in one twenty ounce soda. Oh my God, that is so. Most New Yorkers so are not going to do that, even on a Sunday when the subway doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> um, we only have a couple minutes left, Marion, but I want to talk about um, what what kind of role do you? Could you imagine politics or government playing in influencing or controlling food choices or like, say, for instance, the soda tax, which I thought Mm. was a great idea. It was obviously very unpopular with consumers. The beverage industry went crazy and even food retailers hated it. But had it passed, do you think it would have had an impact on consumer behavior? And do you think if you took more rules like that with foods that created the essentially create health problems for us, Mm. should the government have a role in restricting our access to those foods or making them more difficult to get? by making them more expensive or taxing them mm. to pay for the health problems, the medical costs incurred. What do you think is I, the I think role about there? it in a different way. The government already has a role in the way we eat now. The government has decided that it's going to provide subsidies to the, to the growers of corn, soybeans, uh, and sugar beets, and it's not going to subsidize fruit and vegetables. In fact, the current farm bill says that if a grower of corn or soybeans wants to grow fruit and vegetables, they lose their subsidies. So there are disincentives throughout the system for growing fruits and vegetables. You want people to be eating more fruits and vegetables, particularly vegetables. Um, So there's lots of things the government could do to make vegetables easier to get, cheaper, healthier, whatever, whatever. They're not doing that. They could. And that doesn't require a revolution in the way we think about government policy. They're already subsidizing. Let's just shift the subsidies. So to think that the government is doing something draconian and trying to to discourage soft drink consumption, which I think would be a really good idea, and to promote fruit and vegetable consumption, is I think the wrong way to think about it. It's just tweaking the system. Um, There are lots of things we could do. Whether they'll make any difference is hard to know. Yeah. Uh, Probably it's going to take a lot of different things all at once. All at once, yeah. And do you see uh, in the upcoming farm bill that you, I know you just taught a course on, and I know you've... (laughs) Had the pleasure of really uh, reading through all whatever, 1,200 pages of it or something. It was really long, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's big. What What did you see in this upcoming farm bill that gives you that, well, would you say you were encouraged by some of the 
policy initiatives in this farm I mean, bill? What's or? happening now? It's yeah. you know we're in an election year. Right. This is not a year to do anything uh, dramatic or useful. There are a lot of senators and Congress, uh, congressional representatives, who are interested in trying to tweak the farm bill so it provides more support for the growers of organics and fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. and so forth and so on. How far they'll get at a time when all the talk in Congress is about budget cutting remains to be seen. And it seems very unlikely to me that they'll get anywhere with it before the election. Yeah, that's probably just as well, actually. Because I think that if Obama gets reelected, which I think is likely to happen, um, that there will be a better climate for moving real change instead of... Only if Congress is uh, of the same party. Well, you know, hard to know. I think there'll be a lot of seats up for grabs in this cycle. Right now, it's a stalemate. Yeah. Well, it's been the most fascinating electoral season of my entire life, actually. (laughs) I've never enjoyed anything more than I have as the bloodletting of the Republican Party. (laughs) (laughs) The bloodbath. Eating (laughs) eating each other alive. No, it's been great. Just delicious. Um, So, Marion, we have to wrap it up, but uh, let's talk about any upcoming readings, events that we should know about, where Marion Nessel will be in Well, I post them on my website. So everybody should go to foodpolitics.com. Uh, food all my speaking engagements are posted. I've just finished two in New York, yeah. and I'm going to Kentucky next week. Hot diggity dog. Yeah, Too bad you're not going to be there in time for the Derby. I'm sorry to miss it. Yeah, you should be. <laughs> <laughs> I have it on the highest authority, who, who the winner is going to be, Bodemeister. <laughs> anyway, um, Jack, I think we're, we're, we're done for today. Thank you so much, my, my friends and listeners, for tuning in. Uh, thanks very much to my sponsor, The Hearst Ranch. And uh, see you next week, folks. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 